Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Yaakov, book of Jacob, the book of James. Of course, as you know, James's Hebrew name is Yaakov, Jacob. And the only reason why the book is named after James, a very Anglo name, is because when the King James Version was being translated, the translators wanted to honor the king. So the Yaakovs, the Jacobs of the New Covenant Scriptures, became Jameses rather than the Jacobs. Of course, in one place, Yaakov is retained as Jacob. That is when it speaks about the patriarch or in Romans chapter 11 where Paul says that the Lord will turn away all ungodliness from, you don't want to say James, the king, but all ungodliness from Jacob. And that will be when Messiah, when Messiah comes. I'd love to teach through the book of James, but I want to draw our attention to these verses in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, 27. And what I was thinking about was Rosh Hashanah is around the corner. Next Saturday evening, by the way, Marty Getz will be here and he'll be performing and he'll be leading us in worship and in praise in anticipation of Rosh Hashanah, which is Wednesday night, the 24th. And then, of course, what is it, 15 days later or so, Friday evening, we will be celebrating Yom Kippur. So I thought we could take this Saturday, this Shabbat, to reflect on ourselves and our relationship with the living God as we anticipate these moments in our calendar when we are to focus particularly on the redemptive grace of our Lord and Savior and of our Messiah and what he has done for us. So let me read these verses to you. Verse 19, my dear brothers... Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. 
If anyone considers himself religious, pious, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and it keeps oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, James, Jacob, Jacob does not mince words, does he? It's very straightforward. It's very black and white. And this is a man who is of great significance in the body of Messiah. First of all, he is an apostle. And as such, he is writing this passage to Jewish believers. He's writing to Jews in the diaspora. He's concerned about two things in particular. He's concerned about the persecution they are facing. And that's why at the beginning of his book, he talks about consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. He's concerned about false doctrine. That's why he wrote the passage we just read. True doctrine is not just cerebral in nature. True doctrine works its way out in the lives of individuals, in the actions and attitudes that they exemplify. So he's concerned about false doctrine, not just that it teaches wrong things, but it does not lead to right behavior. And that's what we need to be concerned about as we think about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Bob Dylan, who wrote that great song, What Can I Do For You, is the issue at hand. If the Lord has done such marvelous things, as we think about Rosh Hashanah, the new year, the Feast of Trumpets, as we think about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and we've been the recipients of all this grace that God has bestowed, we must ask ourselves, and so what does that mean for me in a concrete manner? I am one that likes to reflect and think about these things, and so the cerebral aspect is something I find great joy and satisfaction in. But if that's all it is, I am not one who is manifesting true religion as James and as scripture as a whole indicates we should be exhibiting it. So this is a man who's concerned about false prophets. He's concerned about the persecution and the suffering that his people are experiencing. This is a very Jewish book. There are five such very Jewish books among the 21 letters of the New Covenant Scriptures. They are, of course, the book of, written to the Jewish believers. We call it the book of Hebrews. Certainly the books of First and Second Peter are books of great significance and relevance to the Jewish people. Of course, the book of Jude is another one that's focused on the Jewish people. And this book here, the book of James. Now let me just show you some things about this book before we get into this particular passage that signify this, that indicate this. Look first of all to whom he writes. He says, a servant of God of the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Of course, that phrase among the nations is the word diaspora, the diaspora. It's a very Jewish term that was used by the Jewish people to speak of Jews scattered among the Gentile nations. He's writing to the 12 tribes, to all the Jewish people that are scattered outside the land of Israel. Jews in Rome, Jews in Ephesus, Jews in Thessalonica, and wherever they might be found. 
Notice also James or Jacob or Yaakov. I'm not really sure where I'm going to land on this one. But notice that the writer, that's kind of an easy way to do this. Notice that the writer describes himself as a servant. The Greek word is doulos, slave. But what's interesting about this word is that it is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, New, of the Hebrew scriptures. It's always used of Moses, the doulos of God, the servant of God. It's used of the prophets and spokespersons of God. It denotes the authority of God residing in the individual spokesperson. So that when Yaakov refers to himself as a servant, he means one that has the full authority of God to say the things I'm about to say. And he's an interesting one among the apostles. He doesn't refer to himself as such, but Paul does in the book of Galatians. He refers to James as the apostle. But James was the half-brother of Messiah. He was the son of Joseph and Mary. Whereas Yeshua was the son of Mary. So he's the half-brother of Messiah. And while growing up with his brother, Yeshua, his oldest, his older brother, he did not believe in him as the Messiah of Israel. That is seen in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles. But it, it appears that certainly Mary, his mother, and his father, Joseph, did believe in him. As Messiah, but none of his brothers, another brother of Messiah, is Jude, the writer of the book of Jude, Judah or Judas. And both of them were not believers of Yeshua during his ministry. But what transformed James, Yaakov, was that he saw the risen Messiah, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He was one that saw his brother. It's got to be kind of strange, don't you think? His brother resurrected before him. And it served to lead him to faith in him as the Messiah of Israel. We know he was married because Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So we get a lot of information on James, but one thing we don't get information on is his death, but we, at least in the scriptures. But Josephus, Hegesippus, and Eusebius, a Jewish unbelieving historian, Josephus, Hegesippus, a Jewish believing historian, his work does not survive, but it's quoted by Eusebius, who is a Gentile believer historian. Those three tell us of the death of James. They tell us that it occurred around 62 AD, about eight years before the destruction of the temple. And the then acting high priest was a man by the name of Ananias, not to be confused with Annas. Annas was the son-in-law to Caiaphas, or the father-in-law of Caiaphas, at the trial of Yeshua. His son now is on the, the, as high priest in AD 62. And he had accused Yaakov of violating the law of God and therefore was to be stoned. Now, Hegesippus, quoted by Eusebius, tells us how the stoning occurred while Josephus does not. They tell us that Ananias had given Yaakov the option to go up on the walls of Jerusalem and to renounce his faith. So what he did, we are told, is that he climbed the walls of Jerusalem, but rather than renouncing his faith, he proclaimed his faith to the city. 
And Ananias sent up some of his soldiers, some of the temple guard, to go up and to take him and to throw him off the wall. When he landed at the base of the wall, people that were gathered there then proceeded to stone him. James, Yaakov, was one who was therefore called Yaakov the Just, because he was executed, or an innocent man was executed. Josephus comments that the rabbis had said that the destruction of the temple occurred because of their treatment of Yaakov and the unjust manner in which he was executed. He was also known as Camel Knees because they said that he spent so much time in the temple praying on his knees that his knees became all calloused and scarred like that of a camel's knees that uh, is often or always, you know, bowing or kneeling on the ground. So this is an interesting man, is it not? And now he writes. And this book is filled with Jewish stuff. He writes, first of all, about the law of Messiahs, the law of liberty. He makes reference to such incredible individuals like Abraham and Rahab and Job. And he speaks of Elijah and the power of Elijah, that by prayer he could shut up the heavens and he could also open up the heavens by his faithfulness in prayer. Yaakov is the only New Testament, New Covenant writer that refers to God with the Hebrew name of God, Adonai Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He's the only one that uses that phrase. Paul does use it, but as he quotes a passage of scripture that, in which that title is found. But Yaakov is the only one that makes reference to him as the Lord of armies. And it's so neat where he does that. It's in chapter 5 in which he says, uh, the, he talks about the rich not taking care of the poor. And he says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of Adonai Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts. And he says, the Lord then will begin to act in taking care of those who are in need. It's also interesting to note that the book of James does not mention Gentiles, does not mention Paul's ministry or his work in reaching the Gentiles. All of this, scholars tells us, means this is a very early book, probably written around 35, some say 45, but very early among the writers of Scripture. And thus, Yaakov is instructing us. Now, one other thing I love about Yaakov is that he quotes from Yeshua over and over again. There are, by the way, four specific quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures. There are over 40 allusions to the Hebrew Scriptures. And with regard to Yeshua's own words, he makes reference to at least 20 references to the Sermon on the Mount. So if Yaakov did not believe in his brother, he certainly paid attention to him nonetheless while he was teaching and while he was speaking. And it served him well. So now let's look at this passage with these 
ideas in mind. What I'm concerned about is that we cultivate a genuine, meaningful, significant relationship with the living God. That's what our life is meant to be about. It's meant to be about a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what Yaakov is concerned about. So look at this. He says, my dear brothers, I love this about Yaakov. Because even when he wants to scold them, they are his dear brothers. Fifteen times he uses this phrase in the book in order to break up, I guess you might say, the subject matter in which he discusses. And he says, my brethren, my beloved brethren. So what he's saying are to people he loves very dearly. He does not want them to take this like a personal affront or an attack, but he needs to express what needs to be said for their correction and for their guidance. And so the first thing he tells us is if you're going to cultivate a genuine relationship with the living God, you need to be responsive to his word. Look what he says. He says, everyone should be quick to listen. Now, I used to say this passage, quote this passage when I was back east. And as you know, when I was teaching for the uh, 17 years that I was in a uh, Christian school, when I would have my students in front of me, the 25 or so, and they're kind of goofing around. These were high schoolers. And I always remembered what I was like in high school. So I never took it personally. And I never got too bent out of shape because I always felt it was just payback for everything I had done to my teachers years before. But I used to say that. Be quick to listen. It's a scripture. God's talking to you. Quick to listen. But then I realized that's really not what this passage is about. It isn't just be quick to listen to whatever is said. It's be quick to listen to the word of God. And that's why in verse 17, in 18, he says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And now he wants to speak about the word of truth, which is the word of God. And he says, we need to be responsive to it. He says, everyone should be quick to listen to God's word when it comes forth. The second thing that he tells us is not only should we be quick to listen, but we should be slow to speak. In other words, we should be, put it positively, we should be quick to reflect on what the word is saying. Now, let me just comment here for a moment. In the first century, when Yaakov is writing, People didn't have Bibles like you and I have. For the most part, there were scrolls that were read in the synagogue. And when the Torah scroll was read, it was placed on the bima, the judgment seat. And it was a large desk, as you see, because the scroll would need to be unrolled upon it. And this bima, or judgment seat, was to sit, that is the law that would be read from it, was to sit in judgment of us. We're not to sit and judge the reader of Scripture. Is he really pronouncing the words right? Is he saying the right melody? Does he really know what's going on, what he's doing here? No, what we're supposed to be doing is quick to listen to the word that is being resounded from the platform. And this is particularly telling because these individuals couldn't go home and open up the Scripture and say, gee, let me take another look at what was said. They didn't have a lot of opportunity to hear God's word. It was in the synagogue that they could hear it or whenever they would come to it. So Yaakov is saying, listen, you need to really be quick to listen. You need to be urgently listening. You need to desire to hear God's word when it's proclaimed. Because one day when we stand before him, we will be judged in accordance with his word. And so we want to be quick to listen 
to God's word. I understand that there are all kind of teachers and preachers, and etc. And we resonate with a certain style, perhaps. There's nothing wrong with that. But what is wrong is whatever style and whatever manner in which the word of God is presented, we need to listen to the content of what is said. We need to listen discerningly to what the pastor or preacher or teacher is saying so that we're not just taken in by every wind and word of doctrine, but that we're listening carefully and circumspectly and we're evaluating the things that are said so that we can recognize what is true. We need to be quick to listen, devoted to listening, ready to do what God would have us to do. And then he says we need to be slow to speak. What he means, I think, is that once we've listened, we need to reflect on what is said. The tendency is when a person reads a passage of Scripture, aha, I've got to share this with somebody. I've got to tell them this. I've got to correct them for the Scripture says to do this. James is telling us, be slow to speak the word of truth. Be slow to convey it to someone else. Be quick to apply it to your own life, but be slow how you convey it. Make sure you're saying what needs to be said, what is true to what the Word of God is teaching, is what he's telling us. In other words, don't be presumptuous about what is in Scripture. There is a sense in which each and every one of us is to read the Word of God and allow the Word of God to uh, guide us and direct us. He just told us, be quick to listen. But he's also forewarning us with that which we listen to, be slow to speak and make sure you know what you're talking about when you're ready to convey it to someone else. That's why Yaakov is going to say later, be cautious about being a teacher because you will be judged with a greater authority. And so he says here, be slow, cautious about what you say and how you say it. And then he says, and be slow to speak and slow to become angry. Now, he's not talking about our tempers. He's not talking about anger in the sense of when someone disturbs you with something, we start to bubble up, boil up. He's talking about resisting the truth of what God's word is telling us so that we make excuses in not doing it. Now, this is a very telling thing for me uh, because I'm a very rebellious sort. I try not to be, and I try to walk with God as faithfully as I can, but I've got to tell you there's oftentimes, I don't know if anger is the right word, but certainly reticence to do what God is telling me to do is something that I wrestle with. So right now I'm going through periods of tremendous anxiety, tremendous disturbances that are just swirling within I don't feel them right now, by the way. But when I go to sleep, it's all of a sudden, it's there. And don't forget us, you know. We're, we're here. Things are not good. And when I wake up early in the morning, we're still with you, you know. Then I get moving, and I sort of forget them. And then something happens. Oh, we're here, you know. But the Word of God says, be anxious for nothing. I want to say to God, what are you talking about? You know? Peter says, cast all your cares on him. You cannot imagine the number of phone calls I have made just allowing people to hear my woes. And he says, cast your care on me. 
That's what I think Yaakov is talking about. Be slow to anger, to resistance to the word of God and its truth. There is a sense in which we can take pride in our struggles. And we sort of then become the accusers of God in that process. And so when Yeshua tells us, you know, don't take any thought to your life. Don't take any thought to your life. What you will put on, what you will wear, what you will eat, where you will sleep. Take no thought to the cares of your life. He says, look at the flowers, the trees of the field. They don't take any care. It just happens when every spring or every winter, whatever it is, we see these things bloom and say, wow, this is amazing. Why does that happen? Because God is taking care of them. Look at the birds of the air. They don't wrestle with 401ks. But they're fed pretty good. At least the ones in my backyard are. The point is, I'm not receiving the truth, and I become resistant. And the scripture is saying, be slow to that. When people say things or do things, the scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But I want to say my peace, too. (laughs) I want to have my day in court. We need to be slow to anger toward the word of God and its instruction. We need to be careful not to say things like, hey, stop being so super spiritual, which is an issue. We have to be balanced, you know. We have to look both ways when we cross the street. We have to take care of ourselves. But in the final analysis, the sovereign God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. We have to receive that truth, rest in it, and acknowledge it as the word of God. And look what Yaakov says. It has been implanted in us already. Verse 21. Because when we became believers in Yeshua, the word of God was implanted in our very inner core being, Yaakov is saying. I'm not really sure all what that means, but he says it's implanted in our hearts. It's implanted on our minds. It's implanted in our souls. We are, as it were, a word of God people. And therefore, we need to make it preeminent in our lives. And as we think about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we want to cultivate a right relationship with God so that when we come into this season, that we come into this season ready to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, let me just move on very quickly. He tells us here that the goal, I say, a cultivated relationship with God, but Yaakov uses the phrase, a righteous life that God desires. That's what we're talking about. Righteousness, something that is in symmetry with the very character of God and aligned with who he is. And look what he says. He says, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. And here's the key thing. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So there's this focus on humility before God and and before his word. Now, let me move down here. I want to get to a portion where I want to 
backtrack into something Yeshua said. But then look at this. He says, don't merely listen to the word, but do what it says. This is a big part of, of Yaakov's writing. Just don't be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. He says, faith without works, that is to say, faith without doing, is a worthless faith. That is to say, it's no faith at all. It's to say that that individual has been self-deceptive and the issue of their very own relationship with God is at stake. And that's a scary thought. To think that our relationship with God is at stake as evidenced by failure to do the word that we know and that we understand. And so he gives us some practical lessons here on how to do this. He says, anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says, here it is, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Well, you know, in the ancient world, mirrors are not like we have today. The mirrors we have today were developed in like the 15th century or so. The best way you could get a reflection of yourself was either somehow looking into a pool of water. But of course, if you're bald, it's not a problem. But if you've got a lot of hair, you know, trying to keep, you know, fixing it up, it's kind of difficult. But what they did in the ancient world was they took bronze and they polished it, polished it, polished it, smoothed it as best they could. Or they took silver. If you were wealthier, you get a silver one and that one could look pretty good. But the gold ones, that was like, you know, the most accurate reflection they could get. But it can never be perfectly still. So it's like in a fun house, you know, you were always kind of weird looking <laughs> in it. Which meant that, and this is hard to believe, especially here in Los Angeles, people never really knew what they looked like. You can never really see yourself as you, as you are, you know, because they never had a reflective device that could accurately reflect who you were. And so if you looked at a mirror casually, that's what the first look means. It's like a person who looks in the mirror casually and then he walks away and then he forgets what he's looked like, what he looks like. So in the first instance, the idea is he looks, he sees there's some imperfections, but he's not very meticulous about those imperfections. And so this morning, you know, here I was shaving. My dogs went crazy because somebody walked their dog too close to my house. I always tell them, you know, stop doing that. But no, they want to walk on the sidewalk by my house. And my dogs, uh, and they're not, you know, vicious dogs. They're Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. And here they are. And they're tearing at the window and they're barking and so on. And finally I had enough and I go running out there, not outside, but it, it, to the, they stand on a window looking out and I go there and I put them down. The woman's outside and she's walking a dog and she sees, says, hi, I say hi. And I go back into the bathroom and there's all this shaving, grieving stuff, you know. <laughs> it, was like, it was like a weird moment, you know. I said, oh my goodness, you know, I can't face that person ever again. And so they're saying, you know, it's like you see some imperfections, but then you just walk away from it without any concern about the imperfections that need to be addressed. And then it gets even worse. You forget about them. And you don't even have a clue that there's an imperfection to be concerned about. It was Sherlock Holmes who had said to Watson, you know, your problem, Watson, is you see, but you don't observe. And Watson said, you know, in sort of Jersey 21st century language, what are you talking about? 
And Sherlock Holmes said to Watson, how many times have you lived in this, how long have you lived in this apartment building? And he said, Sherlock, man, I've been here a long time, like you have, years. And how many times have you walked up the stairs to our apartment? And he said, you know, like, I don't know, thousands of times, thousands of times. And he said, so how many stairs are there? And Watson said, how do I know? And Sherlock said, there are 17. And that's because you see, but you don't observe. Yaakov is saying, you see, but you don't observe it. You don't take careful concern for it. And so that when you walk away, you even forget about it. But he says, the person who's concerned with the doing of the law, he looks intently at the law of liberty. You know that word, to look intently, is the word to stoop down and to critique. It's the same word that's used of Peter and John, that stoop down, to look inside the tomb, to see its emptiness. They were observing it. They were investigating it. They were looking carefully in there. Where is Yeshua? People said, is he in there? No. And they're looking intently at it. Yaakov is saying, we need to do the same thing in our lives, not in each other's lives. We're to look in the mirror only to see ourselves, not someone else. And to ask ourselves, what are the imperfections in my life that need to be addressed? And not just walk away and then forget about them, but to be honest about who we really are and then saying, Lord, what do I need to do in order to change? I think when he says being polluted by the world, I think he means to be adapting and accepting the world's criteria for things, whatever it is. Because there's a big difference between the criteria by which a believer is to act and the way in which people outside of the sphere of faith act. And it's one basic distinction that distinguishes the follower of Messiah from those in the world. And that is followers of Messiah are to know that what they do is by the grace of God. People in the world, whatever it is they do, they do so as to bring attention to themselves and to somehow a sense of earning what they have and an earning of the rights they want to have. The distinction is dramatic. Because we recognize that we are what we are by the grace of God. And once you realize that, that means everything I have is because of him. All the diplomas on our walls is because of him. Even though they may have our names on them, they belong to him. Everything we have in our pocketbook has come from him. Doesn't mean we haven't worked hard. But it means in the final analysis, we deserve nothing. But God has been gracious to us for he's given us the means and the mechanisms by which we've been able to accumulate whatever we've accumulated. In the world, it's because I deserve it. For us, it's because God has graced it. And we don't want to ever be polluted by the world's values, which attempts to elevate us to a place where we should never be elevated. Because we are to be, as Yaakov said earlier, humble before God and before one another. After all, when we came to faith, it was a posture of utter humility. 
And we only said, Lord, do something with my life. Why? Because I can't do it by myself. The world says we can. We know better we can't. And we need to always keep God at the forefront of everything. Otherwise, we become polluted by the world's values. But the other thing he says is that we are to be ones who look after orphans and widows. Of course, orphans and widows are mentioned throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and into the New Covenant Scriptures as well. But they signify something more than just themselves. Indeed, we need to look after orphans particularly. We need to look after widows particularly. But the category of orphans and widows means to speak about anyone that is in distress. Anyone that is at someone else's or something else's mercy. We need to be ones who are looking out for those who cannot look out for themselves. Those that are hurting. Those that are struggling. Those that are in inner turmoil and conflict. Those that have physical disabilities. We need to be looking out after them. Why? Because that's what God is about. We were the ones with the greatest disability one could have. We were lost in our sin. True religion, genuine religion, is concern with others and not just themselves. So as we think of upcoming Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we want to be certain about our relationship with the living God. We want to cultivate a relationship with him. And that means a devotion and dedication to his word. And that means that we need to be quick to listen and respond favorably to it. It means we need to be slow so as to reflect on what we're learning in God's word. It means we need to resist resisting the truths of God's word and rather to embrace them and to rest upon them. It means we need to develop a humility of heart, soul, and spirit. It means that we need to take personal inventory of who we are really, not our neighbor, but ourselves as we look at the mirror, and to look intently, look honestly, look circumspectly, and not just to go away, but to deal with it and to allow God to deal with it. And he deals with it as we submit ourselves to his truths. And thus, in doing so, the result will be that we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. And if we are doers of the word, then we need to give God all the honor and praise always. And we need to be looking out for those in greatest need. If we do that, then indeed we are pleasing to our Lord. And if we do that, then when Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur come, it will have genuine meaning for our lives. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. 
Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.